Well, thanks for being here this morning. Glad you're with us at Citizens. Uh, if you were with us in the month of June, Dave preached through the life of Abraham. And Abraham is central to the Christian faith in that God promises Abraham that through him will come a new family that will be as numerous as the stars. And this will be a family that doesn't just exist for, his, for its own sake, but for the benefit of the entire world, a blessing to all nations. And so this morning, as we gather as Christians, as God's people, we're actually making a claim upon that inheritance, that we are in the line of Abraham. Galatians chapter 3, verses 7 through 9 says this, It is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. Okay, so together as believers, you and I are new, we are members of this new family of God, not by blood, but through our faith. For this reason, the foundational identity statement of citizens is that we are a family. We identify as family, a family of servants, a family of missionaries, witnesses of this blessing, called by God, empowered by the Holy Spirit to proclaim to all we encounter in San Francisco the good news or gospel that anyone can join this family, regardless of race, gender, pedigree, socioeconomic status, and most importantly, regardless of any sin they've ever committed, or the sins that have been committed against them. Now, none of this is to suggest that this family of faith that we're part of is without flaws, right? Quite the contrary. Uh, when we read Abraham's story, we see that we are the descendants of a very flawed and even dysfunctional family full of incredibly broken people. Okay, and so uh, if we look at our own selves, our own lives, we know we're carrying on that legacy uh, ourselves today, right? Our hope, our only hope is in Christ who offers us grace and forgiveness and the promise to redeem us into the family that he always intended for us to be. And that's what we're trying to do as, as a church, as God's people, to be a redeemed version of this broken family that requires the grace of Christ. This morning, we're going to begin a new series on the life of Joseph from the Old Testament. And Joseph is the great-grandson of Abraham. And as we begin his story, we learn that one particular generational sin that is present in, his fam in, in this family is the sin of favoritism. A favoritism where one child is shown preferential treatment over another is the genesis of many conflicts within any family system. His studies actually show that favoritism is really common in families and that it contributes to a lot of depression and brokenness in both the favored child and the unfavored children in the family. And that all family members are impacted for life as a result of favoritism. Okay, think about your family for a moment. Was there a favorite child in your home growing up? I'm just looking at faces like smiles and looking to their other people, uh, pointing at themselves, Rob's pointing at himself. <laughs> if you were the favorite, okay, you might feel a constant pressure to maintain a status of favorite in every environment you're in. 
Or perhaps you are the victim of your sibling's scorn and jealousy. Maybe that's part of your story. Or if you were not the favorite child, maybe you felt a sense of resentment towards your sibling who was the favorite. And now those around you that you perceive to be the favorite in your office or in other social settings drive you crazy. Right? Perhaps you are tempted to sabotage their success. All of us have this part of our story. It's my guess that most of us can relate to one or the other, either the favorite or the unfavored child. And both positions in the family bring consequences. Neither is actually preferred. They're both a burden and a curse. But there's good news in the family of God. Romans chapter 2, 11 says that God shows no partiality. God is the father who can enter into this part of our life and story, whether we're the favored one or the unfavored one, to bring redemption and healing. Let me pray for us as we jump in this morning. Jesus, we thank you this morning that you bear the burden of being God's favorite son. You are the favorite in this family. And Jesus, you use your position to bless and serve the rest of us. That Jesus, with you as our brother in this family, none of us lose because you lost everything and therefore gained everything and now give that away to us. Anytime, Lord, we're invited to reflect on our story, our family of origin, uh, lots get stirred up, images, memories. And so we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are among us, equipped to minister to us this morning through this text. God, we thank you that the Bible is filled with a bunch of stories of messed up families, families like ours, messed up people, people like us, people that you still love, that you give grace to. God, I pray that you would use your word, that you would anoint your word, that you would cause it to stir us and change us, become as humble learners. It's in your name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Genesis chapter 37. Otherwise, I'll have all the verses in the slides for you. I want to encourage you over these next four weeks, we'll be in Joseph for four weeks, if you would, to read Genesis 37 through 50 on your own. Um, it covers all of Joseph's story. And this story is one of, if not my most favorite story in the Bible. Uh, the first children's book I ever remember reading was Joseph and the Coat of Many Colors. Um, I identify with Joseph a lot in my story. Uh, in my last uh, learning cohort, uh, I used sort of the motif of Joseph to kind of share about my story, and it was very meaningful to me. And the irony of my love for Joseph is that um, Renee, who has synesthesia and considers herself a rainbow, says when she looks at me, all she sees is a gray fog, um, that I have no color, um, which is like, whatever. Um, and then I, and then when I went to get dressed this morning, I kind of realized, oh, I guess that's true. Um, but I'm accenting with orange today. Um, so I want to encourage you to read, read all of this because I'm not going to be able to get to all of it. There's such a beautiful story. In fact, every year when we do the story of God in January, when we get to the part about Joseph, we say like, that's a 
really great story for another day and we don't have time to tell it. And I always like something in me dies because I'm like want to tell that whole story because it's so good. So I encourage you to read all of that. Um, I'm going to tell you what the plan is for those of you that are type A and really love this. I'm doing this as a, as a love letter to you. Um, this is what we're going to do. Um, we're going to, th- this week is Joseph the favorite, Genesis 37, 1 through 11. Then we're going to look at Joseph the betrayed, which is just right after 12 through 36. And then the third week is Joseph the righteous, Genesis 39, 1 through 23. And finally, Joseph the redeemer, Genesis 45, 1 through 8. And so this morning, we're going to talk about Joseph the favorite. And there are three byproducts of the favoritism that's happening in this family system of Jacob towards Joseph sibling rivalry, envy, and naivety. Okay, but before we're going to go through each of those, before we do that though, we need to do a brief family history so that we appreciate the context of the story. Okay, so I'm asking you to kind of bear with me as we go through this. There's two slides that have pictures, okay? I don't know if you've ever seen a genogram, but this is kind of in the form of a genogram to kind of show us um, what the family tree looks like starting with Abraham so that we understand how this generational sin has been passed along, okay? Remember that Abraham is married to Sarah. God promises them an heir that will be the favored child of the promise. They don't trust God, and so Abraham sleeps with Sarah's maidservant, Hagar, who gives birth to Ishmael, okay? So for the first 10 or so years of Ishmael's life, he is the favorite son and considered by Abraham to be the child of the promise, then Sarah finally gives birth to Isaac. So now who's the favorite, right? Isaac is. God never meant for there to be two sons competing for the promise. Abraham blew it, okay? Now, if you don't think that this favoritism had any lasting effects, just turn on the news, okay? Jewish author and Holocaust survivor Elie Wiesel says, the Palestinian problem is rooted basically in the separation of these two brothers. And you can trace that conflict all the way back to this story. Really terrible. Then Isaac marries Rebecca. She has twin sons, Jacob and Esau. And there's a huge battle between these two brothers over who will be the favored one and heir of the promise. In this story, Isaac favors Esau, but Rebecca favors Jacob. Okay, maybe that's your story. Maybe you were mom's favorite, but your sibling was dad's favorite or vice versa, right? This story with Jacob and Esau doesn't end well. Jacob steals Esau's birthright through a plot by his mother, okay? So no one knew better the implications of favoritism than Jacob, okay? So does he put an end to it? No, instead, it gets way messier. Look at the next slide. Okay, stay with me here because there's a lot lot of stuff on here. Jacob meets a woman named Rachel and falls in love with her. Her father Laban requires Jacob to work, work for him for seven years before he can marry her. But then after seven years, Laban tricks Jacob into marrying Rachel's sister Leah, whom Jacob not only doesn't love, but Genesis 29 implies that he actually hated her. Jacob then has to work seven more years to marry the love of his life, Rachel, okay? That's some true love right there. Very romantic. So now Jacob has two sister wives. I don't know how else to say that. And they begin, they just are. They're his wives, they're sisters. 
they start competing with each other. Leah and Rachel are competing with each other for Jacob's affection by seeing who can have the most kids. Okay, Leah has seven, six sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, and then one daughter, Dinah. Rachel is barren and so gives her handmaiden Bilhah to Jacob and she has two sons, Dan and Naphtali. Leah then sees that and is like, oh, we're doing handmaiden thing? All right, cool. She gets her handmaiden Zilpah to have more sons. So then Zilpah has two sons, Gad and Asher. Okay, so Jacob has 11 kids, 10 sons and one daughter through these other wives. Reuben is the firstborn and the heir to the promise. But then miraculously, when Jacob is much older, Rachel has Joseph and Benjamin, but then dies during childbirth when Benjamin is born. Okay, so then you have 12 sons. Jacob then has 12 sons, four different moms, and these are the 12 tribes of Israel, okay? This family is a recipe for disaster, right? 13 kids, 12 sons, one daughter, one dad, four moms, one loved wife, one hated wife, and then two maidservants who would have had little to no rights in their own home. This is the backdrop of Joseph's story. He comes much later than the other boys. He has no cultural right to favoritism, okay? There were 10 older brothers ahead of him in the family line. Okay, let's pick it up in Genesis 37.1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, Joseph, if you look at the Old Testament, he really stands out as one of the few people without any horrible stains on their spiritual record, right? There's no murder. He doesn't kill anybody. There's no sexual deviancy, uh, nothing like that. And so it's easy to think of Joseph and a lot of commentators and pastors will talk about him as being completely holy and righteous. But we know that Joseph was a sinner, right? Because he was just a man. And these verses in particular highlight that. What we see is that Joseph is actually closer in age to his brothers, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher who had been born of his mother's handmaidens. Okay, they're singled out. He's, he's hanging out with them. He's together with them, taking care of the sheep, but then brings a bad report of them back to Jacob. The word for bad here is actually the word evil. And the word used for report is a word that's only used, it's used elsewhere in the Old Testament, but only in the context of something being said that is untrue or being less than the full truth. Okay, so really what we have here with Joseph is that he's a tattletale, okay? And it's possible, if not likely, that his intentions toward his brothers were not good, perhaps even going so far as to call them evil. So we need to ask ourselves, like, why did Joseph tell on them? Why would he do that? Perhaps he had a sense of self-righteousness and superiority because he knew he's the favorite and, and sort of like, separating them out as the lesser sons. Your, your moms aren't even truly my dad's wives. There's something different about you. Maybe he felt like he had to protect his status as the favorite, right? Kind of keeping his father proud of his action. Look at me, dad. I'm kind of looking out for things, taking care of things when you're not around. When my kids, I was thinking this week about my kids and they will tell on each other all the time. And usually when they do that, it's to compensate for their own wrongdoing 
or to gain a greater sense of closeness with Renee or I, which is why Renee and I rarely appreciate it, right? When they do it, because we can sense their ill intention and need to bring correction in that moment, right? And when there's a true offense, when they, when they will tell on their sibling for a true offense, we need to address that, right? Address the sin that was done. But then almost every time we also address the one who tells on them to remind them that they also sin in these ways. And they probably also do these things and have probably also harmed their sibling in this way. Encouraging them to work work it out with each other instead of coming to us. And what we want to teach our kids is that siblings who love each other are advocates of each other, not rivals. Right? Let's think about ourselves. There's this like, we can think about this from like a parent to a child standpoint, but let's, what's the grown up version of this for us? How do we think about our brothers and sisters in the faith? How do we speak about our brothers and sisters to others? How do we speak about them to the Lord? As advocates or tattletales? Do we pray, God, punish them for wronging me? Or instead, God, have mercy on them for their wrongdoing, just as you have had mercy on me. Chances are, However you functioned growing up in your household, however you related to your siblings, either as the favorite or the not favorite or the tattletale or the one tattled on, chances are you still function very much like that today in your relationships with your brothers and sisters and how you're oriented towards God. I was the youngest of two in my family and my sister, my older sister, was very smart and accomplished. And I always felt a deep need to compete with her growing up to be sure that I wasn't going to be overlooked because she was like getting straight A's and she was like student class president and homecoming queen and all the things. Okay. So I'm competing growing up and those tendencies are still true in me today. I am prone to jealousy and envy. Like when I'm scrolling through Instagram and I see like another pastor who releases a book and is excited about it, I'm like, ooh, why did they release a book? How come I didn't write a book, okay? That, that ugliness is still there. Um, I can struggle to celebrate the accomplishments of other people, my peers, because I burn with envy and covetousness. What about you? What parts of your orientation towards your siblings are still present in your life today. Jesus neutralizes sibling rivalry. He is the favorite in God's household. He, like Joseph, brings a report of us to the Father. Only he doesn't speak against us to the Father, but instead on our behalf, advocating, interceding. He speaks not of our sinful actions, but of his own righteous actions that he has attributed to us. Imagine if your brother or sister who is favored by your parents was your advocate instead of your tattletale. 
What if you being the favored one leveraged your status as the favorite to bless and serve your siblings? What if to do that secured your status even more? See, Jesus eternally secures his status as the father's favored son by continuing to advocate for us. That is what his father celebrates in him. Jesus is the brother we all need. One time I wrecked my car and knew my dad would be really mad at me. And I told my sister about it. And I didn't know this, but she went to my dad beforehand to tell him, to give him a heads up, to give him some time to calm down. So that by the time I got home, he was like in chill mode. So I'm like thinking he's gonna be so mad at me. And I come home and my sister has gone before me to sort of say, hey dad, don't freak out, but this happened. It's what a good sibling does. Sibling rivalry is a result of favoritism. It's really painful. There's another outcome and it's envy. Let's pick it up in verse three. Now Joseph loved, now Israel, who is Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his sons because he was the son of his old age. Right? He had waited so long to be with Rachel, waited so long to have a child with her. And so he favors Joseph. And so he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. They hated him. They couldn't even be in his presence and speak a kind word in any way to him. That's how much anger and resentment and contempt they have towards him. Okay, so the second byproduct of Jacob's favoritism toward Joseph is envy due to the gift of a multicolored coat. Now I can't overstate enough the rare significance of this garment in the ancient world. It was expensive and time consuming to dye clothes during this time period. It was really impractical, reserved only for the elite. Okay, children were expected to work in the fields and so they wore plain garments that were torn, stretched, and soiled. The gift of this coat was the gift to no longer work or function as a normal kid would. If you wore something colorful as a child, you stood out to everyone in the community. Okay, imagine if you're like at a junior high or high school that requires matching uniforms. They're all like bland gray uniforms. And then one student out of everybody is given permission to wear whatever they wanted, okay? Well, that would have a pretty big impact on the morale and culture. That's a fraction of the impact that Joseph's coat had on his brothers and on the community, okay? They envied him. And not just because of the coat, right? It wasn't just about the coat although that would have been enough, but more so because of what the coat represented, the unmerited favoritism of their father, a father who also treated their moms poorly. Don't forget that point. Who treated their moms poorly, even hating one of them. I don't know about you, but I kind of want to go, Jacob, are you serious, man? Like, what are you thinking? Did you learn nothing from your own childhood? How can you not see that your actions are creating relational chaos amongst your kids? 
This story is evidence that generational sin that goes unaddressed always repeats itself. Okay, whatever sins are being passed down through our family line, if we don't face them and address them, they will perpetuate. Cornelius Planiga, uh, in his book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, he talks about this. He reflects on what we all know, that sin reproduces itself generationally. He says, indeed, like cancer, sin kills because it reproduces. As every counselor knows, one of the most typical settings for this awful fruitfulness is in the family. Apples do not usually fall far from the tree. Children not only look, but often act like their parents. Alcoholics, for instance, often spring from alcoholic parents and tend in turn alcoholic spouses and produce still more alcoholic children. Sexist families tend to produce sexism to send it like a disease through the family tree so that in every spreading branch of it, men want to control and patronize women. Similarly for racism, ethnic hatred, nationalism, xenophobia, hatred of homosexual persons, and many other bigotries. And then we all know that's true. We've seen it. Jacob has the opportunity and the responsibility to leave behind the sins of his parents and grandparents, but he doesn't. This is, this is where I say, what about you, right? What patterns from your family of origin are you still perpetuating today? It's a hard question. What is God inviting you to name, process, and bring closure to so that you don't repeat it? Right now I'm doing some work around paying attention to how I deal with anger, a tendency to be reactive towards my kids. Usually when I'm feeling afraid or stressed, I will want to express those emotions in anger because I haven't learned how to process anger in more healthy ways. I need to pay attention to that right now. I'm paying attention to patterns of deceitfulness and secrecy. I'm being curious about the parts of me that are self-critical and how that critique of myself gets projected onto those around me, how it creates an environment around me. And I'm not just thinking about these realities in terms of my own self and my own family with Renee and Keen and August, but I'm also thinking about my parents. I'm thinking about my dad, I'm thinking about my mom, I'm thinking about their childhood. I'm asking questions, trying to learn as much as I can. Family systems theorists say statistically, empirically, that if we can connect to patterns of behavior with at least three generations, we have a much higher probability of breaking free from those patterns. A family therapist named Monica McGoldrick writes this, by learning about your family and its history and getting to know what made family members tick, how they related and where they got stuck, you can consider your own role not simply as victim or reactor to your experiences, 
but as an active player in interactions that repeat themselves. What work is Jesus inviting you to do as you reflect on Joseph's story this morning? Without Christ, it will be too great a burden. Jesus is better than Jacob and better than Joseph. Instead of a coat of colors that relieved Jesus of his family duties, he was cloaked with a coat of righteousness that gave him the highest and most burdensome responsibility in all of human history. He wore his cloak of righteousness so that we too could have our own cloak of righteousness. Rather than a symbol of unique status, Jesus' code of righteousness became a universal sign for all believers who entered the family of God. And when you enter the family of God, you are immediately given this same code of righteousness that everyone else has. Okay, none is better than the other. I don't have a better robe, a different robe because I'm a pastor. You don't have a better robe because you've been a Christian longer than the rest of us. Uh, because you've given away more money or done greater acts of service, served on the mission field or, or suffered in greater poverty. We all wear the same robe because of Jesus. He was given his robe of righteousness and that robe got him killed so that he would raise from the dead and give us the opportunity to live with him forever. And so will you let Jesus unburden you from the coat of generational sin and cloak you instead with his righteousness, a righteousness that extends to everyone? I hate admitting this. I, it's not even in my notes because I didn't want to talk about it, but I'm going to do it anyway. My biggest problem with grace, with God's grace, man, this is going to suck saying this. My biggest problem is not that I don't feel like I can receive forgiveness from Jesus for my sin and be favored by him. My biggest issue is that I want to be the favorite, the favorite kid and better than everybody else. I don't want other people to have the same grace I do. Doesn't that suck? That's so ugly. That's such an ugly sin that I don't want to tell you, but it's there of like, I don't, I don't cherish the gift of grace like I should because I don't want to share it. Because it's like I have to be the favorite kid in the family. And if I'm not, then I don't know if I want to be in this family. That's my sin. I hate it. I need forgiveness and grace from Jesus and from you guys because I just told you all how I think about you. There's a third terrible outcome. And it's the word naivety. I couldn't think of a better word. But really, when I say that, I just mean a lack of wisdom. Okay? Let's look at the rest of this. Verse 5. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves. Sheaves are just bundles of grain. We're binding bundles of grain in the field. And behold, my sheaf rose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. 
I love this. You see why I love this story. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers again and said, behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. Okay, so now we're not even just talking about like grain. It's like the whole universe is involved now. But when he told it to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. I love that last line. Jacob's like, I'm just gonna keep it in mind. Such a good dad. This is really like the icing on the cake for the whole family, right? They have just like had enough of Joseph, okay? He's like telling on them and then he's got this, the coat, okay? And if that wasn't enough, it's like, and the dreams now, right? Even Jacob is like, okay, this is kind of, kind of enough, even though his response is super passive, right? Now dreams... We'll talk more about it in coming weeks because there's more dreams in this story. But dreams and their interpretations held great value in the ancient world. I read this week that ancient Babylonians on the eve of an important decision would actually sleep inside their temples, hoping to hear from the gods through their dreams. Okay, And then historically, if dreams came in pairs like they do here, and they're going to do that again later in the story. Anytime dreams come in pairs, that would signify that they're guaranteed to come true. And Joseph knows that. And so he's telling the dreams, he's the second time saying, hey, look, it happened twice. That means it's going to come true. Now, it doesn't say in the story that God initiated the dreams. It doesn't say, and God gave Joseph these dreams. We can infer that because if you know the end of the story, you know that actually these dreams do come true in complete accuracy. But it doesn't say that God told Joseph I gave you these dreams. And it doesn't say God said, and I want you to go tell your whole household, right? Wisdom would have warned Joseph to be much more careful with his words, especially if he knew, and he should have, that his brothers already hated him. But where does a son learn to be wise if not from his own father? A dream like he's having requires wise, godly interpretation. And whose responsibility was it to offer an interpretation of these dreams that would bring the family together rather than divide it? Jacob, who knew Yahweh, had his name changed to Israel, wrestled with the Lord in the night, See, everyone, is, everyone present is interpreting the dream through the lens of power through, rather than through the lens of blessing, which is how we see it too, right? Jacob could have gathered a family around and said, listen, children, let me tell you about Yahweh, the Lord. He is good. He chose your great-grandfather Abraham to be the father of nations, even though he didn't deserve it. And he chose, remember, he he chose your great-grandfather so that all the nations of the world would be blessed. See, kids, when God chooses someone, it's never for the sake of oppressive power, but always humble servanthood and salvation. Jacob could have said, 
we don't yet know what this dream means. Let's just, let's withhold judgment. We don't yet know what it means. But even if Joseph were to stand in a central position in this family, it would be for, for our sake, not for his own. Okay? That's how Jacob could have led his family in that moment. They were blind to that kind of wisdom. And we are too, actually because we're all facing that same scenario in our relationship with Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of those dreams, isn't he? He's the one standing in the center of the universe and all are invited to bow to him. But we like Joseph's brothers and even his dad, think about people in power as being oppressive or wanting to, to rob us of joy, rob us of freedom. But Jesus would say, when it comes to me, power is always about blessing and serving for your sake. And we know that about Jesus. See, Jesus knew, as Joseph did from a very young age, that he would rule over his siblings, his parents, the entire system of Jewish spiritual leadership of the day, and even the entire world and universe. And yet, Satan actually offers that to Jesus and he refuses it because he says, my pathway to rulership is gonna come through suffering. And so the question is, how do we respond to Jesus' dream of standing in power in our lives? Do we eagerly surrender to him? Or does Jesus' claim to be the Lord and ruler in our life cause us only to hate him more, saying to ourselves, who does Jesus think he is telling me what to do? We live in a city that thinks Christianity is a joke. and a city where a lot of people who claim to be followers of Christ don't like the things that he says or are frustrated by, by truths in the scriptures that Jesus himself said. Things like hell, for example. And it kind of baffles me. I want to ask people, okay, if there's a God, is he allowed to do things that you don't like or that you don't understand or that you don't agree with or that feel hard to, to admit or say that you believe or you feel a little embarrassed about them? If he's not, I think a fair question is like, what kind of God is he? A God who always agrees with you sounds a lot like a God you've made in your own image. I'll hear people use sentences like this, people who are not Christian and people that are Christians. And the sentence says something like this, I could never believe in a God who, or if there is a God, he would never dot, dot, dot. The translation to me of both of those statements is, if I were God, I would. Which is, the human condition summarized in four words, if I were God. 
The problem is if you were God, you would leverage your power in a way that oppresses people. You would not be like Christ who lays his life down, suffers the worst kind of death, is the favorite child who is cut off from the father so that while he is separate from the father, he can take on all the wrath of your sin, past, present, and future, and not only yours, but the sins of every human that ever lived. Joseph's dreams come true, and so did Jesus's. He does stand at the center of the universe and all who are his brothers and sisters, members of his family, surround his throne and bow in worship to him. And those of us who follow Jesus, who love him, we don't hate him for being the favorite. In fact, we see it as the greatest relief of our lives because Jesus alone bears the burden of being God's favorite and then uses his position to bless and serve his brothers and sisters. That is good news. And I pray that you would be reminded of that today. Say yes again to Jesus. If you don't follow him, that you would say, maybe I'm interested in this. Maybe I'm willing to ask more questions. And I would love to talk to you about that. Let's bow in prayer. God, I just uh, thank you so much for your word again this morning and for the beauty of these stories, the way that they um, just penetrate our life and story and minds and hearts and bodies and they unearth our sin, they unearth our brokenness, they reveal our deep need for you. God, I confess and repent of my ugly horrible sin of desiring to be the favorite and wanting to be the best and revered. Um, it's been a sin that has been with me my whole life. And I pray, Jesus, you would continue to heal me and set me free from that. It's a burden. It's a burden and it hurts other people. God, I thank you for this faith family, broken and dysfunctional as we are. Uh, that we have you in the family, that you're here working, healing, redeeming. We thank you for your grace. It's in your name we pray. Amen.